Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the July 20th, 2021 episode of Unchained. My book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, or any of your favorite bookstores. Go to bit.ly slash cryptopians. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins, paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. The link is in the description. Tezos is smart money that's redefining what it means to hold and exchange value in a digitally connected world. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. Conjure brings any asset you want onto Ethereum by allowing for users to create synthetic assets which track other markets. With zero interest loans and unlimited assets, it's helping DeFi to consume TradFi. That's C-O-N-J-U-R-E dot finance. Check it out. Today's topic is ransomware. Here to discuss are Kim Grauer, Director of Research at Chainalysis, and Gervis Grigg, Public Sector CTO at Chainalysis. Welcome, Kim and Gervis. Hi. Hello. So ransomware has become quite the phenomenon this year with hackers extorting $412 million from victims last year and then in the first five months of this year obtaining $127 million. And then at the beginning of July, a group called Revil, I I believe it's pronounced, perpetrated the largest ransomware attack so far, infecting more than 1 million computers. And for that, they demanded a $70 million ransom. Before we dive into all the particulars on the topic for today, why don't you each tell us a bit about yourself and your background and how you came to learn about this topic? And uh, actually, why don't we start with Gervis? Okay, sure. Thanks, Laura. Well, uh, my name is Gervis Gregg, as you said. I'm a 23-year veteran retired from the FBI. Before that was a stock and bond broker, but started my career in the FBI working violent crime, and then moved into white collar and advanced financial fraud and money laundering. Then 9-11 happened and I pivoted to counterterrorism, and in particular counterterrorism or terrorist financing. Spent a good bit of my career working counterterrorism and matters associated to that, and uh, then moved into the intersection of technology with that and spent the latter half of my career working advanced technology issues for the FBI. But I knew when it came time to retire that I wanted to try to keep that passion with technology and my love of advanced financial analysis and and I um, and supporting public sector. And so when this opportunity with chain analysis came along, it was sort of, sort of the trifecta of all of those passions. Right. And Kim, what about you? I have been at chain analysis for 
about four years now. And I have been always just trying to figure out what is going on with our data. And oftentimes that comes, that looks like thinking about crime and what types of criminal activity are uh, really surging in certain time periods and trying to figure out why that might be. I have a background in economics. I worked for the city of New York at the before before I made the jump into crypto and worked with them on a few init- blockchain initiatives. And I was happy to see that they have continued those efforts since then. And I am right now, we are we just finished updating some ransomware data and are working on a few other interesting research topics that are going to come out over the summer. Great. So let's talk about ransomware and let's just make sure I think most people know, but let's just define it just to make sure everyone's on the same page and describe what happens to an organization that becomes a victim of one of these attacks. Sure. So ransomware has gone through an evolution over the years from the most original um, uh, instances of that to some of the sophisticated instances that you see and and the one you referenced just recently with this getting more and more complicated and larger and larger in scope. But basically is an individual or group of individuals using uh, technology and code will infect or enter into a person's system and then hold hostage their data, uh, encrypt it or, or even seize it, steal it. And then they will demand payment back from the company to unlock that data or to return it. Or in this case, uh, in some other cases now, as they've evolved, uh, extort payments to not release or make publicly available that data. So you can see this evolution of extortion from first just trying to lock up your data so you can't access it to all the way stealing it and then threatening to release it. Or extort you if you don't pay them in the timely fashion they do to then DDoS your system and do other damage. And so what happens when you become a victim? Like, is it just that whoever shows up for work first that day realizes they can't get in the system and there's yeah. like a pop-up or well, how so, does that? You know, obviously many companies have their operations center who are monitoring the health and maintenance of their networks. And so sometimes it may begin where certain users in the company are, are saying, wait a minute, I can't get access to data that I that I need or the system is sloggy or it's not running it at, at optimum performance, and or they a pop-up comes up and says, your system has been infected and we're now holding you hostage. And sort of that equivalent of the old days ransom note, you know, uh, you, uh, the person that you love and care about has been kidnapped and we demand payment. Uh, and so it can take various forms, but the bottom line is it's that uh-oh moment for the company to realize, oh my goodness, we don't have access to our data, what's happened to our customer records, and then they get the extortion. And what types of organizations and industry do they typically attack? You know, it has run the gamut. Last year, during the height of the pandemic, we saw healthcare providers, hospitals and the like being attacked. Uh, You've seen in the news government institutions and uh, organizations of that. We've seen uh, financial institutions, uh, um, uh, food service providers, energy, critical infrastructure. It's really beginning to spread uh, and not just those boutique uh, entities that most people have never heard about. And that's one of the pernicious aspects of the ransomware campaigns as they're evolving is it's beginning to infect and impact large-scale services that we critically depend on to run our everyday lives. I don't know if you, either of you saw this, but the New York Times reported that um, it got a glimpse of a dashboard on the dark side uh, ransomware site. 
And apparently Darkseid was forbidding its affiliates from attacking any educational, medical, or government targets. I found that kind of curious. Um, what do you make of that? Well, you know, if you look back at the comparison that some have begun to draw between ransomware and counterterrorism, it is an established pattern for some terrorist groups to be careful about who they attack, right? I mean, you, you there are certain dragons you don't want to poke and wake up. Also, there are certain entities that uh, maybe you call off and you say, we don't want to go there. I mean, that's not even uncommon for mafiosos and drug gangs where they will identify areas where they don't want to impact or they don't want to uh, raise uh, attention by certain groups. So it's not surprising to me that groups would create carve outs in areas where they either want to target or want to avoid targeting. And Kim, do you have anything to add on that? I've I've heard of ransomware strains, for example, last year saying that they're not going to attack hospitals. And I think that that because of how distributed some of these affiliates can, networks can be, I think that we saw that people didn't follow that. So they said that, and then there actually were some hospitals that were attacked by said strain. So, you know, how... What does it mean when a ransomware strain comes out and says, I'm not going to be attacking this? Can you, do you just trust them? I mean, is this like, do you take them at their word? We've seen them go back on what they've said to do in the past, especially when they said they were not going to be attacking hospitals. So potentially, you know, echoing what Gerva said, potentially there is some, there's some desire to not really sound all the alarm bells to get everyone kind of hunting the, the, the trails of these ransomware criminals, but I don't really know what else to make of it other than it's just kind of signaling that, hey, maybe don't don't pay too much attention to us. We're not going to attack these terrible things. But in reality, I think they have and would if they if they thought they could get away with it. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about money, Laura. And, you know, in using, as I mentioned there on counterterrorism, you can see groups over the years that say, hey, we don't attack citizens. We just attack the military and law enforcement or we just attack government buildings. The problem is, is that you can't put a bomb outside this, you know, outside a government building and not impact the public. Right. And and so you get that spillover and and uh, these people um, don't always care about those collateral consequences. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, earlier when you were saying you felt that they didn't want to poke the bear, I could see that making sense for government and and for medical as well, in the sense that that might, you know, catch the government's attention, but educational. I kind of was just like, hmm, so maybe some <laughs> kids don't get to go to school one day. Or I don't know. I was kind of like, huh, I wonder what that's about. But maybe it's because once you affect children, then um, then yeah, I don't, I don't know. Then that also catches the government's attention. I wasn't sure. <laughs> well, so tell tell us a little bit more about who is behind the attacks. Are they people who are criminals in other ways or... Are they more like people who just are looking for a quick buck or kind of like teenagers who don't have a legitimate way to earn money with their computer skills or is it something else? Well, I know Kim can add to this, but let me just uh, set up a, a part of that. You know, the environment is really evolving. If we were to go back a number of years ago, uh, many of the actors and players in this mission space had advanced technical skills. Right. They would both design their solutions. They would identify their targets. They would infiltrate their targets, exfil the data and do that. But what has emerged over the last several years, and, and I think you alluded to it, is this really ransomware as a service 
that has come out where there's this whole ecosystem that's been built up around it. Kim has some powerful data about that that, that we help analyze for our, for our customers where you don't have to do all of those things yourself. In fact, you don't have to be particularly sophisticated. And, and what that means is that has lowered the barrier to entry so that more players who perhaps in previous years could not have done what they can do now are able to buy those services and get in the game. That's both scary and profound because it broadens the aperture of players and targets that these companies, governments, and entities have to defend against. It really raises the, the amplitude. Yeah, and I wouldn't – I would say that we're getting really good at starting to try to create more elaborate profiles of who some of these ransomware criminal gangs really are through a variety of, of methods that mostly involve data analysis, but bringing a lot of different stakeholders together to look at the same data with different in different means. And what I mean is we're getting good at this is because – not only are we kind of a data platform where we can see all these different ransomware strains and how active they are, but we can also see what types of services are they using? What types of darknet marketplaces are they using to potentially purchase access? Are there certain languages that are used on the off-ramps that they're choosing to send the stolen funds to? And so we're getting really good at profiling these criminal gangs Let's look at the actual malware. There's been some research on uh, strains that say, hey, don't attack certain regions. And we put out some research recently saying uh, a majority of the top strains active today have a code baked into the actual attack malware that says don't attack CIS um, countries. So don't attack Russian speaking countries mostly. So we can put all these things together to start to profile who they might be, get a lot of good leads for law enforcement. In terms of why do people turn to ransomware? You know, I'll echo a lot of what Gervis said. It's probably a more complicated answer that has a regional dimension as well and kind of depends on which gang you're looking at and which context they're coming out in. But we have, um, we, we have the tools to kind of profile each of these strains in a better way going forward, at least for us. All right. So before we get a little bit more into the ransomware as a service, which is just so fascinating to me, I, I do want to know a little bit more about Reville, the group behind the largest ransomware attack so far. And I did I see- I actually think it is our evil. Oh, it's our <laughs> evil. Yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, our I evil. heard a- I heard a security researcher, I think it was from Cisco or somewhere, say our evil. And I used that in the last show. But then I heard Terry Gross calling it Revil. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. So our evil. So, to, but also they go by another name. So, Sodino, so, can't even. Sodino Kiwi. Sodino Kiwi. Is that a Russian word or? I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay. So, yeah. Tell, tell us some more about this group. Obviously, they're they're the ones behind the headlines in recent weeks. Well, what we do, what I can tell you about our evil is that since it is an ongoing investigation, of course, we can't get into too many details of what of what is going on. But we can look at how has Revil or our evil, how has our evil changed over time? How have they evolved? What services are they using? And one thing that struck 
us when we were looking at the data, the whole time series of data surrounding our evil is the almost exponential growth in the size of payments that are being demanded of this organization. And so to me, that typically signifies a growing sophistication of a certain bad actor because they're probably targeting, have a more sophisticated target. They probably have more resources to carry out this attack. And so we're, we're seeing that with this particular strain. There's also our evil is a prolific user of mixers and more advanced technologies to move funds as well. And so we have been able to triangulate and see all the different kind of methods that our evil are using and how they're changing over time to, to, I don't know, like we don't know, I, I personally don't know, you know, who they are, but all of this data is actually really helpful to paint this bigger picture of what's going on with this, with this strain. And is your sense that they originate in Russia? Our evil is, is one of the many, they are one of the many groups that are affiliated with Russia. Uh, and they have that code that I had mentioned before around the do not attack CIS countries. So, you know, that is leading, you know, to interpret that how you, how you will. But to me, it, it is kind of established that if there's not a definite connection, then it's like a strongly assumed connection. Yeah. And I'm just blinking. CIS is for Commonwealth something, but it's basic- independent states, Russian speaking. Okay. Okay. And and why is it that so many of these cri- cyber criminal gangs do originate in, in that region? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, what we can see is where you have lax jurisdictional control or where the authorities e- either lack the ability or lack the willpower to do something about it, that creates an opportunity for those types of environments to flourish. That's not uncommon in the money laundering sector and other types of frauds and scams where you have weak infrastructure or uh, a governmental position that either takes no position or chooses not to take a position. Then that can breed an environment where those kinds of actors feel safe to operate with impunity or above or outside the law. And we see that in some of those kinds of CIS environments, as well as other places around the world where some of this ransomware strain infrastructure is choosing to position itself. Okay, so now let's dive into this <laughs> full-on business model, which is so fascinating because it seems like it's plucked straight out of a Silicon Valley playbook. <laughs> um, so as you talked about, they follow this ransomware as a service model, which is similar to any other software as a service or SaaS model, such as corporate email that's powered by Gmail or something. And then there are affiliates. So just describe what this whole structure is and how it works and how the different groups uh, within this business model each make their money. Sure. So it it is kind of an interesting evolution from from a technology perspective to see how uh, criminals have adapted to this SaaS model. That comes as no surprise, uh, given that criminal organizations and criminals themselves are oftentimes very innovative. I mean, they operate in a brutally competitive market where the advantages um, have to be pursued. They also don't have some of the constraints that legitimate actors have to worry about: privacy, legality, and and you know, and so forth and so on. So they're somewhat freed and unfettered. Additionally, because they have proceeds derived from their illicit activities, they're able to quickly pivot and buy things. You know, we used to see that when I was working on the southern border 
where the drug cartels would quickly pivot into new technologies that sometimes it took, you know, a while for the government institutions to adopt and get their arms around. So they quickly will gravitate to new capabilities. And when you look at this, if you're, if you're a purveyor of malware and ransomware, you want as many people as possible using your stuff so that you get your cut, right? Uh, and if you are, want to get into the space and be able to make some money, but you lack the technical sophistication or and you don't know how to do that entirely, this provides you a way through the dark market to find those vendors who can sell you those services. So this is sort of the way it looks like. So you want to conduct a ransomware attack. Uh, obviously, you go out there and you find a vendor who can provide you that technical service, right? The tools and, and, and data and software techniques. Then you've got to look and say, well, who can provide me cloud hosting services? So when I steal all this data, I've got to put it somewhere. So you find an illicit cloud provider who will allow you to host the stolen data. Then you also, as Kim said, you've got to find someone who can maybe help you with the mixing and the obfuscation and the laundering of those funds to try to obfuscate where they came from. And then you also, of course, and most importantly, you need somebody to help you exfil that and turn that back into fiat. So you need someone who can help you offload that and offer ramp that money. And so you're doing this across this ransomware service. And one of the unique things that is both a strength, but a vulnerability is how are they paying all these people along that ransomware supply chain? They're paying them with cryptocurrencies. So cryptocurrency and the blockchain become one of those unifying data sets that allow authorities and those attempting to blunt the impact of ransomware, the ability to identify that strain. And that's where Kim and her team really shines because they can pull together that data and give us a, a better picture of the crypto and ransomware ecosystem. In fact, you'll probably get into it later in our broadcast about how a lot of those things consolidate to a surprisingly few number of addresses. I won't steal her thunder on that, but I was taken aback when I learned about it. So, Yeah, Kim, do you want to tell us? Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, just a, a few kind of... The, the cool thing about this is I think Gervis covered a lot of really interesting grounds. The first is that, yeah, there is no kind of central data source with, with the US dollars where you can see where all the illicit money is going. There's just no, there's just no data set like that. You can't, it's very siloed. Each investigation is very specific and takes into account many different cross-jurisdictional pieces of information. You have to coordinate with different, um, especially when it comes to cross-border investigations. And so this data set does allow us to have a really strong sense of what is going on overall. And when it comes to the ransomware as a service business model, yeah, we see this happening a lot. You hear about this in the news. And the cool thing is we can put data to this, these, this phenomenon. So we can see the amount of vol, the amount of cryptocurrency that is moving from ransomware strains to other kind of illicit cyber networks that uh, allow the, the activity to to continue and to go on. So to darknet marketplaces or to purchasing infrastructure as a service. And what we noticed, and it didn't actually make it into our crime report, but what we did notice is that the share of overall ransomware proceeds going to these other, the, this infrastructure has been growing pretty fast. And to me, that means that there are more of the actual kind of supply chain of crime is coming on the blockchain. So you have less need to cash out to go pay your web hosting provider. You're doing it on the blockchain. So that means there are, are maybe fewer opportunities to catch these people because that fiat conversion is a really good opportunity to sweep in and, and get the identity. But we're modeling out the business model, the business infrastructure in a way that you just... 
um, can't do without this data set. So we're seeing more money flowing um, between ransomware strains to these off-ramps, and then we can look at the money laundering as well. And what Gervis was pointing out is that we said, where are all these ransom funds winding up? What services? Because that's the key, getting them at that off-ramp. That's when maybe you'll be able to freeze the funds. Maybe you'll be able to catch the person. And if you're kind of a researcher like me, I'm like, then I can see what's going on and how many bad guys there are. So ransomware of all the types of criminal activity was the most concentrated on the fewest number of off-ramps, both in terms of services and deposit addresses receiving those funds. It was by far the most concentrated. So of all the other types of illicit activity, which were a little bit more dispersed among different services, ransomware went to the fewest services and the fewest deposit addresses on those services. And to us, that echoes this kind of uh, the concentration, definitely. But the money laundering infrastructure that criminals will use who carry out many different ransomware attacks, attacks will then use the same laundering infrastructure to move their funds. And to us, that shows that, hey, these, these groups are connected. And there's this is them purchasing almost the money laundering portion of their, of their um, attack in this whole it, ransomware as a business infrastructure process. And, and Laura, why that is significant from an investigator's perspective. I remember with my time in the FBI, when we were looking to dismantle a criminal organization, one of that was to look at their hierarchy, how they operate, how they communicate, how they move money. And if you could find those central nodes that were critical to maintaining their network infrastructure of how they do a business, and you could isolate and eliminate those by arresting or seizing funds or denying them the ability to perform those actions, you could really impact the viability of that whole network and in some cases completely dismantle it or really set them back and they would have to go to extraordinary means to route around that. Just like, a, you know, if you're on an island, there's only one highway to get to either side of the island and when there's a rock slide, nobody's going anywhere until you can build a new road or get rid of the rocks. And that's where the this kind of information can become so powerful for investigators to understand and map that ecosystem so they can identify those network nodes and those operators to take them down to dismantle uh, the ability for these campaigns to continue and propagate. Um, Kim, earlier when you were talking about kind of the small number of uh, places where these payments are being made, what you're saying is, or you tell me if this interpretation is correct, that even though there are different strains of ransomware that are going around, um, based on the movement of those payments, it appears that multiple of them are actually perpetrated by the same groups or, 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 or that the same service providers are, you know, working with like many or not many, but you know, with, with multiple groups. And so even then at certain points, like certain payments will always end up in the same places. Is that kind of where you were going with that? Yeah, those both could be true depending on the strain, but I'll give you an example. We've identified a really large laundering service. We know this is a laundering service and they're receiving funds from multiple disconnected strains that are not considered to be um, written by the same operator. And so how did they all wind up at the same, using the same laundering infrastructure? Potentially there's an affiliate. An affiliate is someone who is associated with a ransomware strain and they're really behind the attack. An affiliate might be migrating between multiple strains and then using their kind of contacts to send the money to the, la- to the money laundering 
person. I mean, we know in, in money laundering rings using US dollars or fiat, there, there are many different people who are responsible for different parts of the, of moving the money. And so there's not one person who's the money launderer. There's, you know, runners around the, around the world and whatnot. And so there are people who are connected, connecting multiple strains together. And so the takeaway for me is that this ecosystem is maybe a little bit smaller than, than you would have thought otherwise. And thereby potentially more vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, but first, I wanted to ask, uh, and maybe I, I'm not sure if there is a figure on this, but um, do you have a sense of what percentage of victim organizations do pay the ransom? My answer to that is that we there's a data problem with ransomware that we're working really hard right now to overcome with initiatives like being a participating in the ransomware task force, which are bringing lots of different stakeholders together to say, how can we all work together to comp to combat this problem? There's a data problem because people are not, pe there's an underreporting problem. People are attacked and maybe they just want to pay the ransom and have this be done with, or they have, or they just ignore it. There's a lot of reasons why people don't report their ransomware attack. And so we are only having, we only have um, data on the people who, who actually reported their ransomware attack. So we, we can't actually probably give you a good estimate, not to mention the number of people who maybe were, there was a phishing attack that could have led to a, a ransomware infection, but the, the infosec weeded that out. So does that count as like, how does that count? So we we're really trying to navigate this to get better data to uh, figure out how big this problem is. And that's why having like a central data source and putting out these numbers where, you know, over a hundred million dollars in ransomware payments year to date is really important. So we can size the problem up, but that's a long way of saying that uh, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> And, but do you guys have a a recommendation on whether or not victim organizations should pay the ransom or or just in general what what would you say is the best protocol for them? You know, we don't really have a a, a position that where we advocate whether pay or don't pay. I can tell you what the authorities say and recommend is not to pay. But if you do, please let us know as soon as possible. And, uh, and that's kind of the message that you hear repeated oftentimes out of the authorities is they recommend not paying because it further funds the next attack because the money received from this attack only propagates into the next one. And so the exploitation cycle continues and, um, and you want to break the chain, no pun intended. But they do say if you do and you make that business decision, then please let us know because time is not your friend uh, by delaying. All right. So in a moment, we're going to dive more into the cryptocurrency aspects of this whole situation. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins including Bitcoin, at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stablecoins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. 
Download the CritMail.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Do you want to trade gold, currencies, or even bananas on Ethereum? Contra opens access to the global financial market for Ethereum by allowing for permissionless, user-created synthetic assets. Contra allows you to create, borrow, and trade synthetic assets which track the value for any conceivable asset, real or abstract, using any price feed you want. Asset creators are able to earn fees on every mint and scale revenue with direct use for their assets. Synths are minted by providing Ether to collateralize the asset as 0% interest loans. Contra's helping to bring TradFi to DeFi and turn Ethereum into the real global financial settlement layer. Trade synths for USD, gold, BTC, or make your own. So why not check out conjure.finance and see what's possible. Tezos lets you easily exchange smart money throughout our digital world. A self-upgradable blockchain with a proven track record, Tezos seamlessly adopts tomorrow's innovations without network disruptions today. Because of this adaptability, engineers, conservationists, entrepreneurs, collectors, game developers, and artists from around the world are building, creating, and using Tezos every day. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. Back to my conversation with Garvis Grigg and Kim Grauer. So let's talk more about the cryptocurrency aspect of this phenomenon um, the perpetrators are demanding cryptocurrency as their ransom. Why is it that this is their preferred way of being paid? My, I think it's the preferred way of getting paid because to some degree it's, there is, it's easier to tell victims to go to a certain known exchange and it's easier to onboard people onto Bitcoin. So there's a lot of really user-friendly ways for people to acquire cryptocurrency. So you can imagine your regular victim of a ransomware attack might have never really heard of Bitcoin. So what you're going to teach them how to download all of these um, to, to, to use a Monero or something. So there's a little bit of the fact that it's, it's easier. There's also these criminals are asking for millions and millions of dollars. What the most recent one was asking for $70 million. And using some privacy coins, you might have a little bit of a liquidity problem. How do you offload that money? Increasingly, exchanges are thinking of those uh, currencies as being, as being riskier. So those are two reasons why people might... Uh, prefer Bitcoin? I don't know, Gervis, do you have other other ideas? Well, but even also to just take a step back, like why would they prefer cryptocurrency rather than, you know, just normal US dollars? Yeah. So so at the end of the day, they want to get paid and they want to get paid as quick as possible in a, in a manner that is as fungible as possible. And to the degree that it allows them a, a, a level of anonymity or perceived anonymity, they're going to pursue that, right? Drop the cash in a brown paper bag in at the corner of walk and don't walk, you know, near the dark alley and and drive away, right? They they don't want to be detected. So there is, and this is one of um, things we've we've written about, is this perception that cryptocurrencies are anonymous. You know, and at best they're pseudo anonymous, but there is that perceived anonymity associated with it. And to Kim's point, the ease of use and the speed, because cryptocurrency can move across jurisdictionals in a moment, right? And then they can quickly move it from there to another and to another. Back in the day when some of the romance scams and other things were happening, you know, and, and the little old lady had to go into the bank to pay this money, you know, she had to interact with the bank manager. The bank manager was asking her, 
well, Mrs. Jones, why are you withdrawing $10,000 and wanting to wire it to, you know, country X? And, and so there were a lot of barriers to entry. Whereas here in this, Mrs. Jones never has to leave her home. Now that was in a, in a fraud example, but the same thing is true here for the company. There's that lowered barrier to entry without some of the, the perceived checks and balances that help protect our financial institutions and systems. And so many of these criminals are opting to cryptocurrency because of that both perceived anonymity and speed and ease of access. I mean, we even see them uh, demanding them to go to a local uh, cryptocurrency ATMs, right? And do it right through there. So. Oh, wow. So they're, they're directing people just to go directly to, in, in to some, a Bitcoin ATM. In some cases, right? Now, these large scale things, you're not going to go and do $70 million transaction in the cryptocurrency ATM near, near your local convenience <laughs> store. But you can see the availability of these and, and they're, you know, over 15,000 in the United States alone, and they're growing by the day. And so that offers opportunities for individuals to engage in the cryptocurrency market space. But it also facilitates, you know, some of these types of actors because it's no ease of access for them. And so Kim was implying that they tend to gravitate toward Bitcoin. But why is that over a privacy coin? Just because of the liquidity aspect? Or, you know, I would think, you know, obviously we all know that Bitcoin is <laughs> pretty well traceable. So um, are we seeing them gravitate more toward privacy coins? We have seen some um, using privacy coins, but there are there are the limitations that, that we suggested. And, and at the end of the day, it really is just what's the fastest way to get me paid now so I can cash that out into a usable currency. And I think Bitcoin is at least perceived to be the most effective way to get there. Fungibility, speed, ease of, of, of use, big factors. Interesting. So you don't foresee, because I would imagine that if they do turn to privacy coins in a large scale way, then that would make it much more difficult for people like you to follow the funds. Well, you can see, and I think we've seen an impact, a positive impact in certain jurisdictions around the world. Uh, where they have taken um, hard looks at privacy coins and, and exchanges. For example, South Korea recently required that these privacy coins be moved off of their exchanges in their country. And so you can see some of that regulatory pressure happening to um, free up and make uh, available a safer transaction space. And so a lot of these privacy coins are are looked upon in a negative light from a regulatory stance. And uh, many of those countries have implemented or are implementing uh, safeguards for that. Interesting. So are we finding that for a lot of these victim organizations that they have an easy time following the instructions to pay in their crypto? Because, you know, I'm sure we're all quite well aware that most everyday people do not really know how to transact with with this stuff. So um, how, how do they ensure that they actually do get paid? The, the, criminals? I've seen detailed instructions of how to make an account on local or like an exchange. I've seen it on various, I think I saw one on local Bitcoins. I've seen them pointing you to certain um, exchanges and giving you step-by-step instructions on on what to do. Detailed instructions on exactly how to acquire Bitcoin and where to send it to. So 
There's also the flip side. I think these really the bigger ransomware payments, they tend to um, contract out someone to actually handle the whole process of the ransomware payment. So they'll hire someone to negotiate and to pay ultimately pay the ransomware. So they, of course, have more expertise. But those tend to be at the uh, for the really large attacks where there's lots of money up to million, multi-millions of dollars that are asked for in cryptocurrency. But other than that, I mean, maybe there are some times where people just couldn't figure it out and didn't pay it and then rolled the dice and hoped they got their funds back. But we can only kind of guess on what's happening with them. You mean they got their files back, their data? Yeah, yeah. We can only guess like if they didn't, if they couldn't figure it out and didn't pay, did they get their files back? We don't, we don't know. Unless they reported it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I would imagine they probably don't, right? If they don't pay, I would imagine that they really just don't get them back. But then out yes. of curiosity, when when people actually do pay the ransom, do the criminals then actually decrypt the files for them? I've seen both happen. I've heard of both happening. I've heard people paid and they didn't get their files decrypted. I've heard people pay and they did. I've heard, I've even heard of people finding universal decryptors, not paying and getting out of it that way. I think it really um, depends on, on your circumstances and who was attacking you. Huh. Okay. So once the attackers do have the ransomware payment, assuming that they do get paid, how do they cash out? You've kind of alluded to these um, money laundering as a service providers. <laughs> um, so how many are they? Where are there? Where are they located, et cetera? So the first thing we do to answer that question is we look at all of the wallets that are controlled by different strains. And then we we just look at where they go after they leave the wallet. And that's where we're going to see them going to uh, the infrastructure is a service that we that we mentioned, the darknet marketplaces to support further attacks, but also services where they can convert those funds to uh, either other cryptocurrencies or to fiat. And what we're what we're seeing there is the funds moving through sometimes sometimes one wallet, sometimes thousands of wallets to potentially obfuscate detection and then winding up on a few services where where they we can only since we kind of our eyes we stop when we see uh, with blockchain transactions in many exchanges a lot of the trades that happen are on order books and they kind of manage those order books we can only kind of guess what happened after that but at least we know where to look where to direct law enforcement so this exchange this deposit address this and then from there you would you would get the next step would be a subpoena where you could say, hey, what do I know about the person managing this deposit address? It looks like it's actually a service or an OTC broker or an individual and and piece together all of those other pieces with that off-chain intelligence that we, um, that we don't personally have. And is your sense that there are many such services like these? And if so... It, you know, is that why they are still able to proliferate? Because, you know, like like you said, if it's something where you can identify an account and get a subpoena to get more information on that, I would imagine that that would be a very natural uh, vector for law enforcement to go after. 
There aren't very many. There are not very many deposit addresses that are receiving the illicit funds. It's surprisingly concentrated on a few very large deposit addresses that mostly do criminal activity. Um, sometimes you can, one of the cool things you can do is you can say, okay, let's, these, look at the services that are, or the deposit addresses on exchanges that we're receiving illicit funds. What other types of things are they doing? Are they doing 5% ransomware, 95% derivatives trading, you know, and that can get you a, a profile of who these deposit addresses are. And then from there, you could say, oh, it looks like this deposit address receives 50% funds from these three different strains. And their the rest of their funds is really large transfers, rounded amounts of, of cryptocurrency. That looks like uh, maybe a poorly regulated OTC broker that's operating off of these few services. And yeah, there there's opportunities for disruption there. There's things that can be done. I mean, this is an ongoing thing that we're that we're dealing with as an industry. What what do we do about this? And um, profiling these deposit addresses has been um, something that has been proven to be really extremely interesting because we can get into the, the the weeds of who who these organizations are. Is it one ransomware transfer and then they shut down or consistently ransomware transfers over the past five years? And those types of questions, you can start to situate the deposit addresses into different categories, which um, helps you profile them even more. And to Kim's point on that, it shows uh, the ability that it takes a multifaceted solution approach. You need your not only your law enforcement uh, agencies working, but you've got your regulators as well, right? So that whole of government solution to um, dismantle the, these ransomware capabilities. Yeah, one one thing I was thinking about was Kim's earlier comment in the episode where she said that it kind of increasingly they're not actually cashing out to fiat and kind of transacting more in cryptocurrency. It frankly makes me think, so not only does that mean that then there are fewer points at which law enforcement maybe could get more insight into these groups, but then, you know, have ways to kind of intercede. But um, it also makes me think that as the wider world adopts crypto, then there will be more opportunities for them to perpetrate these attacks and get paid um, without, you know, having um, to worry so much about law enforcement. But who knows, maybe by then law enforcement will have new tools. <laughs> um, so one thing in terms of tools that, Gervis, you mentioned earlier was that um, you said in a blog post that the ransomware phenomenon has parallels to terrorism. Mm-hmm. And um, what are those parallels? Yeah. You heard national leaders draw that comparison. And I think part of that came from that sense of urgency and need for national unity to pull together a whole of government solution for it. It clearly is a threat because it's impacting people's daily lives. When you disrupt uh, fuel supply for a major portion of a large country like the United States, or you impact food production, or you disrupt uh, major healthcare providers and their or banking and your ability to access your funds, you're affecting people's lives. And that's creating terror uh, and fear and, and sowing that kind of uh, distrust in the system. So uh, the analogy is clearly there to, to draw between counterterrorism and, and ransomware. 
what I was expanding on that article was, is, well, what are some of the solutions that we've implemented successfully over the past several decades to counter the terrorism threat? And what are their potential analogies to the ransomware? Clearly, of course, it's, um, you know, you've got to do a good bit on awareness and communication to sort of bring people uh, up to speed on what is this threat. Uh, We talked about the whole of government solutions that you need, both integrated coordination between national policymakers, law enforcement, intel, regulatory entities. Um, There's also a resourcing to the problem, right? I mean, this problem takes resources to address, um, and that resources are not just from the government. If you look into the private industry, when you look at the cyber hygiene of some of these companies and, and some of those that became victims to it, there were perhaps some of the cyber advisors would say there were things they can do to prevent that from happening next time. So it's a real um, complicated but understandable problem. So when you were talking about um, kind of the whole ecosystem, the, this ransomware as a service and then all the other actors involved, and um, you mentioned that it's sort of creating this like little industry with these players and there's um, you know, consolidation happening. And you said that that actually represents ransomware's biggest vulnerability. So how can that be exploited to prevent further attacks? Right. Building on what Kim was talking about there is understanding who are the key players? What are those nodes in this ransomware supply chain where maybe the, the key mixing services, the key offloading and money laundering services, who are the big purveyors of some of these exploits and tools that they're leveraging or they're web hosting or cloud providers and and then going after those. You know, I recently um, I, I shared this analogy with a friend about a vehicle. There's a current backlog on a number of vehicles here in the U.S. Why? Because the chips that go into those vehicles are on backlog. So you have this complex machine that's got lots of thousands of moving parts, is enormous, weighs 2,000 pounds, and yet the whole production is dismantled and delayed for a small little chip, Right. And, and that's analogous to, I mean, uh, it, to, to even to the ransomware. So if you can understand how all those parts fit together in the ransomware and then be strategic about your targeting and going after those nodes, you can really affect the whole network. And so what I mean by that, and that's some of the counterterrorism strategies that have been applied successfully is identifying the leadership, the funding, how they travel, how they radicalize and recruit. Well, those same kind of analogies can look at here at ransomware and some of the things that Kim talked about. And I think that's a framework that government agencies across the world can pursue to reduce the impact ransomware is having on us. But I think you're right. We are going to see it continue to grow because currently there's nothing to de-incentivize this activity. And so many of them are moving forward. It seems like the same playbook that our evil used, but in reverse because they attacked Kaseya, which had you know, all of these companies that were relying on its information. And so if you do the reverse to them, it would, have the same effect. Um, so now let's actually talk a little bit about Colonial Pipeline. In May, hackers ransomed the systems of that company, which is one of the largest pipeline operators in the US. And they requested 75 Bitcoins as ransom. And 63.7 of those were paid to the hacker. The rest presumably went to DarkSide, which was the ransomware as a service provider, as a commission. And the US Department of Justice was able to seize those 63.7 BTC. And it's not known exactly how they did so. So what do you think are the most likely theories? Well, I hate to disappoint, but I'm really not in a position to talk about that particular uh, instance or, or case. 
Um, what I can say is I think it illustrates, though, the need for raising the crypto literacy and capabilities of government agencies, because it's not enough just to defend against an attack, nor to push it back or, or to find the people responsible. But you also want to return the money back to the victims. And then, of course, potentially never let them become a victim in the first place by some of the proactive things we talked about earlier in the broadcast. And I, and I think that is one of the takeaways from that type of an incident. Okay, I, I will mention that there was an analysis by Galaxy Digital's research arm, and um, there a couple of theories were first that maybe DOJ was able to serve a warrant to an onshore exchange or OTC desk, desk who then complied uh, with law enforcement. Um, the second theory could be that DOJ got access to a compromised computer that had access to that wallet. And Darkseid had said previously that its servers had been compromised. And then another theory was that maybe the FBI had apprehended someone who was affiliated with the hackers who had access to that private key. So that's just for listeners who are wondering how that was able to happen. It's not necessarily that Bitcoin itself is compromised. <laughs> um all right. So, you know, at the moment, we are seeing quite a lot of movement or at least talk by the government. Um, so what would you say are the best tools that the government can use now to prevent and combat ransomware? Yeah, well, this is going to lead quickly into Kim's strength. But uh, let me just set the stage. You really first it begins with data. You've got to have the right data to both understand the ecosystem that you're dealing with, as well as who the players and actors are and what those transactions are moving across. The blockchain, of course, is a publicly available ledger and anyone can look at it. But having the right tools to interpret that data really becomes important and be able to do that at the speed crypto moves at. And I think that's where you're going to see a lot of growth in this market space of both making the, the right data available and the tools to help quickly reduce the time to insight and to follow it. Kim? I would echo first and foremost, data is the most important, at least if you're thinking about if you're a victim who has paid a ransom, you're, what's your best shot of you know getting your funds back? And then you have the bigger question of, okay, ransomware is picking up. We called 2020 the year of the ransomware because there was over 300% growth and probably more now. And 2021 right now on the track that we're on right now is going to just far exceed 2020 in terms of the funds going to ransomware. This is something that's growing really fast. And so I think the industry solution is probably multi-pronged around education, info security, but also awareness of how we can see every player, you know, that we, that we have data on, we can see what they're doing, we can see their operations, and we can see where they're cashing out. And the fact that the fact that it's smaller than uh, the money laundering infrastructure is smaller than we had originally anticipated, I think is actually uh, makes it feel a little bit more manageable to me, at least than then, oh my gosh, there's ransomware happening every single day, millions of attacks. But actually, like this is the size of it. These are how many different groups we're tracking and these are the off ramps that they use. And so kind of that, tr that level of transparency makes a really scary problem feel more manageable. But other than that, I think just it's going to be a multi-pronged approach to, to tackling this, this problem. Yeah. And maybe the fact that it's very much an international problem will also help because 
when you have so many different countries and industries that are affected, um, I, I imagine that maybe that will be more motivating to people to, to kind of band together and act, or do you get a sense that that helps? Oh yeah. So international cooperation, public private partnerships, uh, there's probably some legislative changes that are needed to strengthen the consequences, uh, and, legislation around ransomware and those that perpetrate those type of cyber events that increase focus on asset recovery and sanctions, um, work that can be done to raise the fences, the cyber fences, if you will, among critical industry and infrastructure providers uh, to make them less vulnerable for exploitation. And then, as we talked about, literally going after with a focused dismantlement campaign to identify those key players, actors, and nodes on that network uh, and go after them regu- from a regulatory perspective, from a law enforcement perspective, uh, and the like. All right. Well, I guess we'll have to see how the rest of this year plays out. Hopefully, it won't, um, you know, snowball into something even bigger. But it sort of looks that way at the moment. All right. Well, where can people learn more about each of you and Chainalysis? You can find our research on our blog. We have a section that details all of the research we've put out and you can you can subscribe to our, our newsletters so you can get insights into what types of new research we're putting out and what we're paying attention to. And yeah, we're always doing new research topics right now. We're focusing on the geography of cryptocurrency, which is, you know, the other 99% of activity that isn't illicit, you know, what's going on there. So yeah. Yeah, you, okay. as Kim said, you can go to our website and Kim and I are routinely publish information there and updates along with others from the company. And we'd welcome uh, you give us a visit. Okay, great. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Gervis and Kim, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening.